Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to Ian Lynham. Ian is currently based in Tokyo, where he seems to have his hand in all sorts of projects, ranging from design to writing to curating to teaching to publishing. He runs his own design studio. He teaches at Temple University Japan and the Meme Design School and is chair of VCFA's MFA graphic design program. He writes for magazines like Idea and Slanted and runs WordShape, which is a sort of boutique type foundry and online shop that sells things like posters, books, and zines and design ephemera. So you can see he, he's a, a man who keeps busy. In our conversation, Ian and I talk about his origins working at Kinko's for the easy access to printers so he could make his own zines to studying at Cal Arts and building his own design practice. We talk about the state of design discourse and the problems with the sort of design writing that you often find on sites like Medium today, as well as the role of design writing in his own practice and how he teaches design theory and encourages writing to his own students. Ian is someone whose work, both as a designer and, and really just as a thinker, I've really admired for years now. He's just one of those people who I think just gets it and is just incredibly smart and generous and really embodies this idea of design being a type of inquiry, which is uh, an area of deep interest to me. So I think Ian's writing is really unique and needed. So I was really glad we could have this conversation. I know it was illuminating for me and hope it's the same for you. Here is my conversation with Ian Lynham. So, I, you know, I've been following your work. I, I, I don't even actually know where I kind of first came across your work or your writing, but I've been following your work for a couple years now. It might have been your, your book, actually, uh, Parting It Out. But I don't actually know much about kind of where you came from or, or how you got interested in design. And so I thought it would be nice if we started there with just, you know, where did your interest in design start or how did you uh, how did you become a designer? OK, um, well, I started, you know, I, I'm from upstate New York, from a really small town outside of Albany and um I first started making small zines, um, self-published, okay. independent publications when I was 14 years old. And um, I didn't realize that it was design, but mm -hmm. I was, you know, writing stuff, doing the layout, doing the illustration. Um, but I was much more interested in the concrete aspects, typography, and how everything fit together in terms of a visual narrative right. uh, at a really young age. But I just wasn't aware that it was design. And I went to school briefly at SUNY Purchase in New York. Uh, realized college wasn't for me at that point. Dropped out. Uh, moved to the Bay Area. And just kind of worked at a bunch of oh. odd jobs, including Kinko's, just to have <laughs> access to free printing. Right. And, um, yeah, and just continued self-publishing up to a point. You know, and this was like by that time, you know, I was born in 72. I'm 44 now. Okay. And I was just interested in self-publishing. And um, during the first dot-com boom or, the, or during the dot-com boom, um, I had a really low opinion of graphic designers due to um, my um, interfacing with them right, right. <laughs> as a Kinko's employee. Yeah. Um, it was always... Um, quite frankly, jerks with black turtlenecks and black leather pants who have very <laughs> high opinions of themselves. It wasn't until, you know, I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years and then moved up to Portland, Oregon. And there I met some of the first nice graphic designers in my lifetime. And one of them offered me some freelance work. And that's how I discovered graphic design. And that's when I became interested in graphic design proper. I was thinking about going back to school. And it was either urban planning and architecture or graphic oh. design oh wow graphic design it was so i mean yeah. it's it's interesting yeah. that you know because one of the things i wanted to talk to you about so we'll kind of come back to this a little bit later is is it mm -hmm. seems like so much of your work 
is uh, kind of revolves around self-publishing or self-generated content. So it's interesting that that was kind of there for you from the beginning. Yeah, and I'm surprised actually that I'm still doing it because there were a <laughs> number of years that I thought I outgrew it, but oops, apparently not. So, yeah. And so were you, I, I just want to kind of, you know, pull some things out from, from that hmm. just for a bit. You know, as a as a kid or, you know, as, you know, as you're kind of growing up and as you're in the Bay Area working at Kinko's, were you were you kind of through that whole time, you know, making things and kind of publishing things on your own that and were you kind of writing all through this time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, during that time in the 90s, there was um, a pretty big boom in more personally oriented zines and self-publishing right. that spun out of the male art movement of the right. 80s. Okay. And, um, yeah, just, you know, things that were leaning more toward expression, you know, some fiction, some comics, some just memoir, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like, uh, I think the writing that I do now is very much an extension of that. You know, it's like kind of like, pop memoir but now there's the design criticism part of it right in as well right yeah i mean so I, I, it's, it's interesting hearing that and i feel like so much of your your current work and writing uh suddenly makes a lot more sense um oh, right on. and you know it, it, it kind of all comes together um so so when you decided to go back to school is that when you went to cal arts no i went to portland state university oh, okay. for my undergrad okay. and like i've been like re- like I dropped out of school, but I just, but I kept going to different community colleges um, <laughs> okay. in California just because I was interested in learning, but um, just, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to make the deep dive yet. Right. So, so I had a bunch of credits and then went to Portland state to finish up um, my undergrad. And that's where I learned, you know, the rudimentary stuff about I graphic see. design okay. while simultaneously working at a couple studios. And then what, like, what were you, what were you thinking or feeling at that time? You know, did it feel like suddenly all this stuff that you had been doing that now you had a name for it or that it made sense? Or did this just seem like a continuation and it wasn't this kind of drastic, like, oh, I'm making graphic design? Um, it felt different because... Um, at that point in the late nineties, there was this focus on professionalization and what we were taught in school was to make, you know, shiny things for Nike as opposed to things that were more DIY. Um, basically my, you know, internally it was kind of, it felt as though one had to hide the work that was more independent because it was viewed by graphic design culture at large as being too retrograde and atavistic. Mm-hmm. People were more interested in, you know, the work of Clement Mock than someone self-publishing right. their own right. stuff. Okay. And so, so, and so while you're in school, you're also kind of working at some studios. Did you, after you graduated, did you kind of go right to work or kind of what were you thinking was your kind of next step then? Like at that point, um, Portland's economy was really in the toilet. Um, okay. I'd already worked in a bunch of studios adjacent to some of the bigger players in Portland. And I had a, so, I, so I'm working part time or full time and freelancing at different studios in Portland while getting my undergrad education. Okay. So I kind of felt like I was, you know, at least I had a sense of what the food chain was like there. Right. And also, uh, while I was going to undergrad, I was, fiercely interested in theory and criticism and I just didn't get enough of that. So, and I had, you know, I'd already been working class forever. So I got the mechanics of how one might run a studio and worked enough to, to figure it out. Right. So then jumped to LA to Cal arts for graduate school. Okay. So this, so this is interesting because that was my next question. I was kind of leading to, to Cal arts a little bit and I was curious how that kind of changed your thinking, but you had an interest in theory and criticism before that and where did that what started that or where did that interest come from or how did you discover that i mean um 
I could I could really perceive the dearth of writing around graphic design at that time. Oh. You know, there were like a lot of the slick monographs and it's the same thing today. Yeah. But like really stuff that was cerebral and intellectual and um, there just wasn't and still isn't enough of that. So I just uh, I'm a voracious reader. Okay. And um, so P- Portland has uh, Powell City right. Books, one of the biggest yeah. bookstores in the world. And like I read the whole design section, like I would <laughs> I would go every week and just yeah. read everything. And the library I exhausted pretty quickly. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So I was just interested in the intellectual capacities, and I had some really great teachers as well who pointed me toward things to read. And then so. is that why? You know, I, I've been I've talked to quite a few people from CalArts now for this podcast. And, you know, just to be completely honest, they've been some of my favorite people that I've talked to because there seems to be such a interest in criticism and theory coming from that institution. Is that why right. you were interested in that? Why you yeah. were interested in going there and and studying with them? Yeah, completely. You know, um, I applied to a bunch of different schools, but um, speaking with people at CalArts and going there, um, I just got the sense that, in essence, most other schools either were kind of sprawling or too open-ended right. um, in terms of their course of study or too kind of myopic. Yeah. And like CalArts, in my experience, as I perceived it going in, was about really focusing on rigor, you know, making work that was um, visually seductive, but at the same time in, entrenching oneself in history and theory and criticism. And um, yeah, that was, it was very, very, very appealing. And, and so when you were there, is that when you had started kind of writing about design or, or when did, I, I guess my I guess my question is I don't mean to make it so specific. My question is kind of no. you had been always writing and designing and kind of publishing. When did when did your writing start to be about graphic design? I mean, basically, my thesis there was you know the my first actually I had see I had, I had started writing in undergrad for um, I had this really great teacher named Margaret Richardson, who was an old, she was an editor for UNLC magazine. Oh, yeah. And I had written some pieces for that. And Font Shop had this trade publication called Font. Oh, and yeah. I had written some stuff for that. But it was more like, you know, just trade writing, right. you know, just like right. Margaret had recognized that like, oh, here's an undergrad student who's a bit older and can write to spec, <laughs> basically. Right. So, okay. So I was doing that kind of writing, but then um, while at CalArts, uh, my faculty there, especially Lorraine Wild, yeah. Jeffrey Keady, Gail Swanland, Louise Sandhouse, yep. Ann Burdick, Michael Worthington, they all pushed me yeah. to develop my writing, Jeffrey Keady especially. And um, I was just in LA hanging out with him and like he's, he's just a great friend and mentor and someone I really look up to. When I, I, I'm curious, kind of when you started teaching, then or, or kind of where that. And I know we're jumping kind of out of order a little bit, but that seems like another another big part of what you're doing today, and right. everything else that you're doing seems like you've just kind of always been doing it. And so, where did the teaching part come in? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I started TAing, so being a teaching assistant in at Portland State, and then at CalArts. Uh, I was Gail Swanland's teaching assistant for the senior class and Jeff Keaty's teaching assistant for um, the type design class there. And yeah, and then basically I graduated. I worked in LA for a year trying to figure out what my next moves were. And then I moved to Tokyo and pretty immediately started teaching at Temple University Japan in the continuing education department. And that rolled into teaching an undergrad a year later. Okay. And so uh, this is a good, this is actually a good place to kind of start talking about the work that you're doing now. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I'll try to do a quick rundown. Tell me, okay. tell me if I miss anything. You are a, uh, you're a teacher at two or three institutions. Three. Uh, yeah. um, you run a studio. Yep. You write for various publications. Um, yep. 
you have some sort of publishing imprint thing. Slash type foundry so... slash, slash software ventures slash distro. Okay, okay. Um, and I saw that you just started some sort of uh, curatorial practice. Yes. Uh, is, did I miss anything? I think you got it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I have a couple questions just kind of around all of that. And, and okay. I'm interested in, I, I, I don't want this to be over simplified, but I'm interested in kind of the, how all of those things fit together for you and how they kind of blend into each other. Do you, okay. do you know what I mean? That's not really a question. Yeah, but... totally. It's a question. I totally okay. get it. Um, or more, it's a line of inquiry. Yeah, so. yeah. That's a good way um, to put it. So... Uh, how do they all fit together? Basically, you know, there is professional practice in which I do work for commercial and cultural clients, which helps to pay the bills. Um, I very recently became a full-time faculty member at Temple University, Japan, after being oh. adjunct for many years. Okay. So that is um, something that also helps pay the bills a lot. Right. That it, it's really pretty much the same workload as what I was doing before. Right. As an adjunct faculty member for a number of years. Um, so those two fit together in terms of my love of... Um, and then, okay, and then also I'm the co-chair and faculty at Vermont College of Fine Arts right. in the master's program in graphic design, which is a low residency program. Right. So there's that. And then I have a small type foundry slash publishing company <laughs> okay. slash software venture slash distribution service called Word Shape. Right. And the way that all of these things, and I also teach at a little like weird typography finishing school kind of, it's like a Saturday school oh, okay. for um, typography in Tokyo called Meme Design School. And they oh. kind of fit together. I see that all of this as kind of pieces of the puzzle of my life in terms of inquiry and in terms of kind of the things that tickle my brain intellectually. Okay. Um, so I've got professional practice uh, where because of all the other stuff I have going on, I can be really picky about the work that I take on now for the first time, only right. over the past six months. And that's really great. Yeah. So I get to be choosy, you know, no designing brochures for people anymore, which is really <laughs> right. exciting. Right. You know, just like, yeah, I don't want to do work a day design. I want to do things that are meaningful to me and to people or things that I just, you know, um, have a fancy for so there's that component the teaching both at an undergrad level and a graduate level is really complementary in terms of constantly shifting how i think about both you know the formal and conceptual aspects of design and the synthesis of such and being able to kind of to talk to folks that are you know who've been practicing for a long time and folks that are just starting out. Yeah. And um, just having, you know, it's really healthy to have a range of people in your life. Right. You know? Right. It's like when, when a lot of people get married, they like hide away from the world and they only hang out with their spouse and then their <laughs> yeah. life goes to shit. Yeah. So there's that. And then the self-publishing, um, I really let one... <laughs> I really kind of like doing things the hardest way possible at all times. <laughs> okay. So, um, I don't know. Like, I, I enjoy self-publishing and publishing a few other people's work. And I really enjoy doing type design on occasion. But it's so rigorous that I don't want to do it all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. And okay. then um, the teaching at Meme Design School. It's teaching in Tokyo and being immersed in a context that is very domestic and not international for the most part. Right. And that's really interesting. So it just kind of takes all the boxes of my life and my interests. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, this, pro this podcast kind of at a high level, like, you know, the tagline of it is kind of the intersection of criticism and practice. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is that that word intersection doesn't seem like it fits because it seems like kind of the critical theoretical side and the educational and academic side are completely in sync with the kind of practice making work that you do. Um, I even liked 
the the web your website for for your studio says that you operate at the intersection of graphic design, design education, and design research. And I, I like that idea of a studio that encompasses all of those things. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's my hope, is for it to be expansive, yet somehow focused. So, so. I, I have kind of a random question that's kind of just okay. related to this. Um, it, uh, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, okay. Just kind of, you know, roughly how much of your work is self-generated versus client-based? And then the second part is, do you find that you approach the kind of formal design work differently de depending on if it's something that, that's self-generated versus something that you're doing for a client? Um, at this moment, I would say, I mean, like, when we say client-based work, um, talking about, like, pure studio practice yeah yeah, yeah. probably like uh, i'm teaching three days a week at temple plus um working with my grad students at vcfa which essentially equates to another day or so a week except okay. people are turning their work in so you know studio work is like see it's really mm, so client-based <laughs> stuff is maybe 30 percent because okay. the other thing is like um Studio work for me also involves designing type and we're developing software oh, right. because okay. essentially with um, designing typefaces, they're a very stable form of software that you don't have to update every time an iOS update comes out. Right. So it's extremely stable, packet-based, packet uh, digital packet-based, royalty-based income. So that's a big part of my studio work. So that basically is about half of my practice, including that stuff. Okay. Sorry, that was a long answer. But. No, no, that, that's, it's, that's really interesting. And then do you, do you kind of approach, like is your design process different or do you find yourself um, kind of handling projects differently if it is something for a client versus if it's, you know, a, a zine or a self-publishing project? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, it's usually a fairly traditional kind of setup when working with clients, you know, often with collaborators, you know, be it, you know, web developers or, you right. know, people doing production on typefaces with me right. for client work. So, okay. yeah, that's that's more traditional. And the aesthetics, I don't know, I, I think more and more people are coming to me for the aesthetic of the work for commercial mm. work. So I'm able to kind of bring in a certain amount of like visual design authorship right. to commercial work right. that people are seeking. Interesting. I want to, I want to kind of step back a little bit and talk about uh, the state of design criticism or, or kind of current contemporary design discourse. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, basically your whole design career, you've also been kind of writing about design uh, and as I mentioned before we started recording, I listened to the interview that you did with Mitch and Joshua on Through Process, and you were kind of uh, talking about the anti-intellectualism in graphic design. And, and so I, I have a series of questions here, um, but I'll, I'm just going to kind of start with something that I hope is kind of basic. And I'm, I, I, what... Let me let me think the the best way to phrase this. Oh, that's cool. Uh, what what kind of design writing are you most interested in doing yourself? And then also, what kind of design writing are you most interested in reading, or that you're most excited about reading today? Does that okay. that was a weird way to yeah. phrase that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's parse it out um, in terms of. Is it cool to – so I'm going to flop the questions. First, yeah. in terms of reading, um, there's not a lot of specifically graphic design writing at the contemporary moment that I am very interested in. Yeah. With the exception of uh, Francisco Laranjo's work. Oh, yeah. Um, Randy Nakamura. Yeah. Jeffrey Keady. Um, when Lorraine Wilde writes something, um, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, those folks are kind of the heavy hitters for me, but there's just not 
you know, but like it's the the like constant stream of blather that comes out on medium.com. Most of that. I just, I don't look at it. Right. Um, Cause the thing is there are basically two kinds of writing in the work. Er, sorry. Two types of writing in the world. There's things that are timely, more timely and more timeless. And the format tends to point toward the quality of the work. Mm. Medium.com posts tend to be more timely. Right. Whereas work that is in print tends to be more timeless. And this doesn't mean that I have a bias towards print per se, but if someone, for example, for example, Francisco believes that the writing of himself and his collaborators are, is of worth, he makes the investment financially and intellectually to put it in right. print and right. to pay money for it. So, so there's that. Um, and then also, like, you know, just in terms of shelf life as well, um, when things go in print, people right. tend to take them more seriously. So the, the second part in terms of design writing that I do, there, there are specific slices of it at the contemporary moment. Um, I'm very interested in analyzing design culture through a critical lens that involves a couple things, primarily political economy, mm -hmm. history, narrativity. And when I say narrativity, I'm talking about the things that make a story a story, but not the story telling itself. Oh, okay. And yeah, 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 that, so, that would, that would basically be it. That, I mean, so that's okay. This is now I feel like I need to kind of parse out your answer to, to ask my next questions. Okay. Um, you know, talking about the, the, the writers that, that you kind of are, are interested in and kind of avoiding kind of the medium, you know, hot take kind of design writing that is so prevalent. I feel like, you know, we're kind of a hundred percent on the same page there. Okay. Um, and, and I, I, I am completely with you. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, do you, I, I'm sorry, this is another multi-part question, but do you think, one, I guess, you know, what is, and and this is going to sound a little bit devil's advocate, and I don't mean it like that, but what is the value that you see in kind of having that kind of rich, deep, uh, timeless intellectual discourse around the work that we do? I, okay, so first off, I don't think anything is truly timeless. I'm just right, talking right. in terms of relative scale. Right, you know? right. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, a tweet versus, um, or it's not even a tweet, like a comment on Facebook versus a zine, right. in essence. You know, something, you know, something that is in print or um, is published online, you know, say... Uh, I had an exhibition in York, Pennsylvania last year, and I made an essay as microsite. So mm -hmm. it's a self-contained entity. So there is a more conscious sense of cultivating the vehicle for the writing, right. as opposed to just like, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's a whole, you know, basically there's already a medium for it and you can just hit publish. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just conscientiousness and yeah, that's the, Sorry, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, and then do you think, you know, I, I guess I'm, yeah, that answers it on one level. And then I'm also kind of curious that for kind of, you know, the the profession at large, you know, do you think, and, and I realize this is a very general statement, but do you think kind of that kind of deep reading and writing about design how does that kind of further the profession or help the profession or, or the value that that brings to the actual work that we're making? So, okay. So that's the whole thing. I mean, it depends how much value you put on work. Um, okay. Looking at design through the lens of political economy, as I mentioned earlier, right. um, I don't think labor is the end all be all. And I don't think the output is the end all be all because essentially designers are usually doing things for other people. Right. And yeah. uh, most of that is just labor as opposed to something of value. That's the very difficult thing for graphic designers to tease apart is that 
sometimes the content isn't worth shit. Right. Sorry to be so blunt about it. So often, um, because, you know, design authorship is often it's about, you know, the surface, but often it's about the means of production and how one enmeshes oneself in, um, social and economic relationships. And that's usually more interesting to me at this point than, Right. Just, you know, something something cool for somebody cool at the yeah. contemporary moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, this this reminds me, I interviewed um, you know, a month or two ago, I interviewed one of my professors at Micah, Christian Bjornard, who is really interested in sustainable graphic design. And mm-hmm. and in our interview, we kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what does sustainable graphic design mean? And I, not knowing much about it, kind of saw it as, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote, green design or, you know, kind of you know, recycling and that sort of thing. And he flipped it and talked about it um, kind of about, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but kind of sustainable ideas or what are the designing around the things that you want sustained. And, you know, he's, he's similar to you in that he teaches and can be very selective with his projects, but it's talking about like, you know, sometimes I get a project and it's not something that, you know, I think has value or something that deserves to be in the world. And part of my job is saying, you know, why, why are we doing this? And that that raises a lot of interesting questions about criticism in, you know, in kind of moving it beyond form aesthetics and the object and start talking about, I think this is very much in line with the kind of writing that, that you're talking about. Why does this exist? What, um, what, uh, what is the culture that this was born out of or, or put into? Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is <clears throat> there is, there's been a real dearth of different approaches to contemporary, well, to graphic design criticism in, you know, the past decade mm-hmm. um, because, you know, be- between the imagined past the experience past and our hopes for the future lays a very precarious present in which we're enthralled in entertaining and being entertained so much right. so that we're losing our ability for a discussion beyond 140 characters per tweet. Right. Um, there's a right. writer and artist named Martha Rossler and to paraphrase her, she said, you know, celebration and lifestyle mania forestall critique, a primary, what did she say? Hmm. A primary emphasis on enjoyment, fun, or experience precludes the formation of a robust, exigent public discourse. Some, something like that. Essentially, reason, oh, wow. reasoned criticism has been supplanted by the medium.com pseudo op-ed piece without editor, publisher, suitable publication, a Facebook post. Right. And even, you know, how things like the New York, the Sunday New York Times has morphed from being a news publication into essentially a self-contained style section with right. a thin right. news wrapper. People want experiences, you know, contemporary populace wants their H&M and their Disney Time Warner controlled New York City theme park, Union Square, their simulated city as entertainment shopping complex with right. smooth yeah, yeah, yeah. English language transactions at exotic tourism destinations <laughs> right. with Thai and Mexican food options and an Oculus Rift at hand at all times and the absolute right to broadcast whatever they want to say whenever they want to say it without thinking about it too much. Right, right, yeah. I sorry to get dark. But no, I mean kind of you're reality. Of yeah, moment. yeah. I mean you're exactly right. I'm curious. Um, you know, a lot of I've been trying to kind of get out of the American design discourse, and I'm curious. Being in Tokyo, um, is it similar, or 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 kind of what is the what is design writing like? Uh, similar, but different. I mean, every, you know, Japan and the U S have similar histories, but they're different. Um, that's one thing that graphic design as, uh, an area of cultural production has never come to terms with is that there are divergent modernisms and postmodernisms globally. Um, it's something like, you know, almost nobody has poked a stick at that. And, you know, I've lived in Japan for coming up on 13 years and 
it is just the history is different. What we perceive of as the canon of graphic design history is different. And oh, um, I'm really lucky. I write for Idea Magazine, yeah. which is Japan's oldest graphic design magazine. And uh, the editor of Idea, Hiyonori Moroga, he writes at length about that and is an amazing um, collaborator and person who encourages people to write critically about the contemporary moment. And he's essentially writing the history of Japanese graphic design through the magazine itself. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'm I'm only kind of partially familiar with idea every now and then I'll I'll see a, you know, kind of PDF scan of, of an article that's been translated. And so far, everything that I've seen from them has been amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a thing, because if, if, if you're, I highly recommend going back, go, going to the library and um, looking at as many as possible. Okay. I mean, that was seeing Idea Magazine for me when I was living in Portland was a, one of the things that greatly shifted my trajectory as a designer. Oh, wow. It offered everything that the U.S. design press didn't and still does not to this day, yeah. both in terms of form and form and like just like printing like each issue had like you know five to 20 different paper stocks and finishes and tipped in booklets and posters and but but slick not like um esopus magazine or something that feels like it's nice and expansive but the production quality is a little bit low rent yeah um yeah idea was just amazing and it's still amazing and that it's been around since what 1953 yeah that's amazing with like you know like it was a kind of crappy trade rag in the 80s for the most part yeah but throughout the late 90s and early 2000s till now it's just been a phenomenal publication yeah that's all that's great and so how often do you are you writing for them and are you kind of pitching stories or are they coming to you with things that they want you to write about or how does that work it's a mixed bag um Basically, like, you know, I'll pitch some stuff. Um, Madoga-san, the editor-in-chief, he'll, you know, he'll ask me to write stuff. I'll help out with some copy editing here and there. Okay. I'll design some stuff. It's just kind of like when they want me to do things. Or, um, I don't know, he and I co-curated the, the study room, kind of like the reading room at the Brno Biennial in the Czech Republic. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And he and I... And um, a really amazing designer from Osaka named Tetsuya Goto, we put together a whole feature about the Brno Biennial, but also about the history of graphic design exhibitions globally and in Japan. Oh, interesting. So, like, it just really depends on the issue, the topic. And he knows, he and the the staff at IDEA know that I'm just down to help out with whatever. Right. They're the best. They're the most chill, cool people. That's so awesome. So. I have, I have just... Who are fierce critics? So, sorry. oh, I mean, no, and that's the best. <laughs> that's the best way to be too. Um, yeah. I have just a couple questions, just to kind of wrap it up and kind of tie some of these things together. Um, okay. I'm, I'm interested. You started answering this a little bit, and this is a question that I ask everybody. Uh, but I'm curious, kind of, what are the topics or issues that you think designers should be kind of talking, writing, thinking about right now? Okay. <clears throat> Essentially, maybe the thing to do is to talk about um, thinking. So, okay, actually, there are there are certain. All right, this is gonna be a slightly long answer. Go for it. I Basically, um, I started teaching at Temple about six months ago. I started teaching my first lecture courses that mm-hmm. are a combination of art and design history and um, Asian studies classes. So they're lecture courses. They're outside of just being a purely graphic design uh, situation. So one of the classes I teach is called Japanese Arts in Cultural Context. And what I've been doing is try to tease out, trying to tease out what are the big things culturally and societally that people are interested in right now. Things like authenticity mm-hmm. and things like retro culture and trying to 
you know, provide the students with reading about those things from the contemporary moment and how those ideas fit into conceptions of our past. And that's one thing that <clears throat> designers don't do enough is to really look at culture at large in terms of ideas like authenticity, because, um, you know, I was talking about the experience economy right. and um, essentially that is authenticity as we've constructed it right now. Right. What we consider authentic at the present moment has very little to do with a historical sense of being truly genuine or yeah. historical. Yeah. It, instead, it's how experiences feel to us. It's a style of oh, experience right. as opposed to being evidence yeah. of an experience having an origin. So, And that comes because claiming authenticity, um, there's a writer named Sharon Zukin. She, she wrote about it. She, she basically said claiming authenticity is prevalent when identities are unstable and people are judged by their performance rather mm. than by their history or innate yeah. character. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like those kind of big ideas – and at the same time, criticism is often stalled at a um, service level yeah. because people are afraid of poking others. You know, so like if you look at the work of, say, Metahaven, right. Metahaven's work has a historical lineage that are and, and at the same time, um, those folks seem very hesitant to talk about why their work looks the way it does. Right. So you just folks are afraid of poking others at the contemporary moment because, um, you know, it's all about how things feel as opposed to getting deep and talking about why things are the way they are. So it's, it's about power constructs yeah. and getting people out of their comfort zones. So how, so for that lecture class, I, You've hit on something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple months, and I think bringing up Metahaven even, you know, connected this to a couple other things that I had been thinking about. Um, you know, at those lecture classes, and I guess even, you know, you know, kind of any of your classes, how does this, how do you kind of talk about this stuff in a classroom setting? Or how do you get your students to think about the work that they're doing beyond a surface level. And the reason that I ask that is because, you know, talking about Metahaven, something I've been thinking about a lot is how that sort of Metahaven style has become the kind of default for designers who want to see themselves as, as like critical designers or, you know, kind of design fiction designers. And now that's mm -hmm. just an aesthetic trope, um, be, you know, kind of because Metahaven you know, kind of has done that. How do you get students to kind of think about these things or to kind of move beyond these things or think about form as a, you know, container for ideas right. instead of just that surface? That's the really nice thing about working with both um, undergrads in Tokyo in a fairly international environment, mm -hmm. as well as grad students in the U S um, it's a pretty wide sampling. Like most, um, undergrads at Temple Japan have no idea who Meta Haven is or have a sense of, you know, what oh. Jeffrey Keaty is called the global style. Right. Yeah, they're yeah. just kind of like coming to it through looking at Pinterest. So they're just kind of looking at everything and they can't tell what's, what's, what's like quote good or right. not good. Yeah. You know? So it's just a matter of like going through and categorizing. All right. So this is like, you know, the current American little bit country, little bit rock and roll. <laughs> right. Lester Beale meets Aaron Draplin down at the, Parisian right. cafe you know so yeah. like there's that and this is how you know if you want your stuff to look goofy and theoretically academic you do this if you want your work to seem insidious and critical this is how you do that and just really parsing out style but then talking about histories and where they come from with the work and yeah same thing with the grads and it's really hard because most graduate students come to graphic design with a more uh a more uh, they, they just have more experience in terms of analyzing aesthetics and why things look the way they do and you can just talk about it on different levels with them and encourage them to make work that either looks or operates in ways that are hopefully different than others right I, i'm you you had mentioned that I, i'm kind of going back to our our 
discussion a little bit earlier about design criticism and how there's not a lot of current design criticism that you're you're reading these days. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested. Are there other are there other fields or other disciplines or writers writing about other topics that you find yourself turning to and, you know, either applying to your design work or seeing the way, you know, a critic looks at something kind of wanting some of that turned to graphic design? Yeah, totally. You know, um, So, okay, so first off, what I would say is there isn't a whole lot of um, graphic design criticism with a lot of the proverbial meat on the bone there right Right. now. So it's not about me trying to ignore things. As I mentioned, I read a lot. So I do go out and I read as much as possible. But stuff that has a lot of um, worthwhile content is not out there yet because – not out there yet. It's just not out there because folks aren't trying that hard. And that kind of falls back. It's kind of the fault of the academy because graphic design education, like historically and in the contemporary moment, you know, like what is a graphic designer? So you've got your email designer, you've got your, um, you have to get motion graphics in there. You got to get your multimedia in there, AKA UI UX. So the thing is graphic design is spread through so thin and that um, it's really hard for academic institutions to put a real focus on theory and criticism. I was just in LA um, hanging out with um, Jeffrey Keady and paraphrasing things that he said right here. So there's that. And then um, in terms of reading, so like my undergrad minor was in political economy. So I I read a lot of stuff by like, um, there's a writer named Joseph Heath that I liked a lot. About, he writes about communicative action and morality. So him, I read a lot of um, critical Japanese history of design and culture okay. by people like Andrea Germer and Jennifer Weisenfeld. Then cultural reading. I'm a giant fan of Svetlana Boim's writing about nostalgia mm-hmm. and uh, the artist, critic, and educator an educator, Martha Rossler. She wrote yeah. a really great book called The Culture Class. So it's, I mean, really sprawling, but then like stuff that's a bit more speculative, like Evan Calder Williams writing about, okay. um, he calls it salvage punk, basically, you know, how we're headed toward, you know, from a moment of precarity into something that's far more scary in terms of uh, late capitalism. Yeah. So oh, interesting. Yeah. And then like weirdo fiction. I don't know. I just, I like reading a lot and I like writing and I like processing through that and making stuff that is more experimental in terms of installation work that kind of folds, you know, like type design and writing and visual form together with found objects and some sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting. It leads into kind of what, what I wanted to ask you next. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like we're very similar in that regard where I just, you know, if I could, I would just read all the time. And and I'm very committed to the kind of process of writing and spend a lot of time trying to become a, you know, a quote, better writer or, you know, better articulate my thoughts through writing and then, you know, combining that with with the kind of design work that I do. And that, you know, that that kind of leads into to this kind of final question that I wanted to talk to you about just a little bit was, I think it was a year or two ago you came out with a small zine uh, I think it was called something like Start Somewhere. And it was about uh, kind of encouraging designers to write or, or helping designers to start writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious kind of the origins of that project, but then also at, on a larger sense, why you think that it's worthwhile for designers to to write or, or, you know, kind of the value of bringing writing into the design process. Um, so the history of that came from, you know, I mean, years and years of writing, but then also, you know, I I only feel like I hit my stride as a writer in the last, like maybe five years. And, um, so just kind of like the, the subtitle of that was something like, you know, 
like it was a handbook of dubious tips, tricks, and rants about becoming a designer who writes. Right. Yeah. And it's just about the process of writing because nothing scares the pants off designers more than generating their own content. Yeah. And that could be visual, it could be written, and then synthesizing the two. That's incredibly hard because designers, um, usually all those jobs are parsed out for different folks. And to kind of do it all yourself is daunting. Yeah. And it's more to like just to encourage people to do it because ultimately <clears throat> writing for me is something that's very cathartic. Um, I'm not, you know, you always see the movies like, ah. Oh, Movies where, you know, you've got, like, some writer who's got a deadline oh, for yeah, their yeah. draft of their novel, but they, they've got writer's block and they're freaking out. And that's, like, the premise for, like, you know, tons and tons of movies. Right. It doesn't have to be like that. You can just write, and it makes you feel better. Mm. And um, it makes the world more relatable because ultimately you get to know yourself better at yeah. the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's just, like, I mean, it really, that was that came out of teaching a lot of the time. Cause I just tend to say a lot of the same things. And at VCFA, I've been involved with the faculty in writing, um, our student handbooks and thesis guidelines. And a bunch of the ideas for that came through, um, writing stuff, writing, writing <clears throat> essentially the thesis, the thesis handbook with, um, my fellow faculty and just, you know, how to start writing. And yeah. I was like, Oh, you know, I got back from my residency and I was like, that, is interesting so i'm working on i, I put out one follow-up to that about um you know it's this little zine called coloring inside the lines coloring outside the lines about oh. it's basically advice for design grads who just got out of undergrad oh cool and then i'm about to release a new book <laughs> called can it's called cannibals and it's oh. a handbook of dubious exercises, tips, and rants about becoming a designer who teaches. Oh, interesting. So that'll be out hopefully within the month. Oh, have great. have to do one last proof today. But like just, you know, there are a lot of things about design that people are interested in. It's just designers usually spread themselves so thin, both yeah. in terms of work and then their personal lives, because people are working more than ever and everybody feels like, you know, you have to have everything. Right. And, um, I don't want to have everything. I, you know, I don't want to have kids. Like I want to just focus on the stuff that I want to do and I want to eat well and I want to drink well, and <laughs> right. ride my bike and go swimming Yeah. and teach and like do this expansive practice. But I want to enjoy myself and not spread myself so thin. Yeah. Despite everything I yeah. said. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> That's great. I feel like that's, you know, that it it's such a perfect way to actually kind of wrap all of this up because I feel like you you know very much are, you know, as somebody who's kind of followed your work from afar and now talking to you uh for the last hour or so, you seem like you're someone who very much kind of practices what you preach and that you are kind of doing all of these things and you're following your interests and it's so great to just kind of watch what you're doing and, and, you know, kind of see this stuff that you're doing. And so I am a, uh, I try to read everything that I can that you, you put out and I've enjoyed this conversation so much. This was so fun. Thank you so much, you know, for talking Thank you, with me. Oh, I appreciate it as well. Thank you. This episode was recorded on June 5th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.